This time, we review the Mad Max ripoff Waterworld. And along the way, we ask, why does Kevin Costner try too hard to be like Mel Gibson? How cool is the Mariner's boat? And how did this movie cost so much to make? Two podcast hosts meet. Something needs to be recorded. This is Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host... The Sea Mariner, Sean Michael Culp. <laughs> oh, man. So you're, you you think you'd be the Mariner in, in Waterworld, huh? <laughs> no, I would probably be dead. But if I did somehow survive this apocalyptic whirlwind, I'd probably be... Uh... I'd hope that I would be one of the guys floating on the sea barges. Yeah, I was just going to say, I could totally picture you as one of the superstitious people that's living on one of those atolls in the beginning of the film. Right. <laughs> Selling dirt or quote unquote dirt to people. <laughs> what, or dr- dumping dead bodies in ocean brine or whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. I can, you know, whatever it takes to survive, Chris. Whatever it takes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So as mentioned, we are discussing the legendary, for not so famous reasons, Waterworld on today's episode. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, I think you nailed that. It's quite famous for certain reasons. Uh, you want to <laughs> dive into this waterific whirlwind of a land? Oh, yes. So Waterworld is set in the distant future where Earth's polar ice caps have melted and the planet has become completely submerged, forcing the remnants of humanity to a life of floating futility. And it is here that we meet the Mariner, a mysterious drifter who finds himself the unwilling protector of a little girl who may hold the key to finding the mythical dry land. Ooh. Yeah, anytime you find like a, a child with a tattoo on their back, I think you you should take that pretty seriously because you got to be pretty messed up to like tattoo a child, in my opinion. Right, that is kind of nuts. I, I'm just kind of curious how they found like ink in like you know like uh, of all the supplies to save if the if this is like going to be a climate change nightmare, tattoo artists <laughs> quite perplexing. <laughs> Yeah, I think in a in a post-apocalyptic world, tattoo artists are in short supply around here. <laughs> Hopefully, right? But then again, who knows? Maybe tattoo artists are like some of those hipster people that like, I play the piano and skydive, but then I also forage for mushrooms and know how to create elaborate <laughs> cuisines with acorns, you know? Yeah, I make my own pickles out of special brine juice, you know, like one of those types of people. Exactly. So, I, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. There's a lot of crazy people in this world with interesting skill sets. Yeah. Well, speaking of crazy people, the the man who attached his name to direct this film initially was a guy by the name of Kevin Reynolds. And, you know, he's actually had a pretty interesting career after looking him up. He was a writer on the original Red Dawn with John Milius, and he had pr- established a pretty solid working relationship with Kevin Costner up to this point, having directed him in films like Fandango, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Rapa Nui. And I've only seen Robin Hood, and 
I gotta say, like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is not a great movie, but man, it is entertaining and still somewhat holds up, you know, some years down the road. But man, that's a fun movie to watch sometimes. Heck yeah. And it features, a, well, a cameo by Sean. I know it from a cameo from Sean Connery. And then uh, it's got the dude that plays Snape in it. You mean the legendary Alan Rickman? Yes, Alan Rickman as, uh, I think, King John or whatever. Richard or Richard King Richard. Yeah, he's he's the horrible person, the sheriff of Nottingham who... who you know, wants to tax everybody and kill people. Yeah, that's that's Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, a villain? No way. Who would have thought? <laughs> but yeah, this is the the big thing in this film. The big actor is Kevin Costner, and don't this was still in the days of Kevin Costner being the most marketable leading man in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, at, at this point, he had appeared in Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, Dances with Wolves, JFK, The Bodyguard. And this is this is the height of Kevin Costner power. Like everybody, he could he, he the could, postman. This was the postman was after Waterworld, so this is still this was still like Kevin Costner is the most popular leading man in Hollywood and can do no wrong. And ever been and everybody thought Waterworld was going to be this great, you know. Oh, Kevin Costner is now a blockbuster action hero, and well, that didn't exactly happen. <laughs> Oh, were they wrong? I would say Waterworld is the tipping point for his career when everything after Waterworld pretty much turns into uh, Kevin Costner loving himself too much and the story's just going right in the toilet. Well, I mean, after Kevin Costner, I mean, I think the cast kind of drops off a little bit. We got Dennis Hopper as the Deacon, and now Dennis Hopper has had a pretty legendary career for the most part, by the, the late 80s and this period in the mid-90s, his career had started to dip quite significantly. And I think it really started with uh, his appearance in Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, because after that, he's really not into anything much uh, that uh, interesting outside of, I think, Waterworld and, like, Speed. He's the villain. Like, he became the villain type, you know? For the 90s, and then his career kind of just drops off in the 2000s before yeah, his death. Yeah, so, um, yeah, an unfortunate kind of uh, mediocre end to his legendary career because he's been in films like Rebel Without a Cause, Hang 'em High, Easy Rider, the original True Grit. Oh, so, yeah. you'd be hard pressed to find a better filmography than Dennis Hopper's, but then he just gets to the late 80s and early 90s and he's like, I need money. Right? Exactly. Due to divorces. <laughs> And unfortunately, well, I mean, it is tough. You never find it. Uh, many actors are able to step away at the right time, you know, before their career goes to kaputs. I mean, Gene Hackman did it. Sean Connery did it at the right time. I mean, it, Jack Nicholson. It, it always sucks when they do because you always want one more out of them. But hey, man, they did it. They didn't ruin their legacy. Right. And then rounding out the rest of the cast, we've got Gene Triplehorn, who plays uh, Helen in the film. And this was still pretty early in her career, but she was still <laughs> relatively up and coming here. She had appeared in Basic Instinct and The Firm at this point, And now she's been a mainstay on television. She was on Big Love for that show's run. She was on Criminal Minds for a long time and then was in the HBO film Great Garden. So she's... You know, she's kind of carved out, you okay. know, a solid niche for herself. You know, when she does do a project, it's usually pretty good. So, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> and then, 
<laughs> and then we got uh, <laughs> Tina Majorino as Enola. And I initially, Ooh. I didn't Rubbing recognize her at first, but she was Deb, the little um, like hair accessory salesperson in Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, no way. Okay. Oh, what a uh, career she's had. Yeah. <laughs> From starring with Kevin Costner to appearing in a high school cult classic, she's had a pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> interesting career. Well, I guess, you know, for the chicks that w- listen, maybe uh, Veronica Mars, she's like in that TV series, which I don't know much, and in Big Love as well. So there's that. Yeah, so we got some crossover here. And then rounding out the rest of the supporting cast, we got Michael Jeter as old Gregor, the the, in, the quirky Russian who flies away on his little dirigible <laughs> there. Uh, we, we get Kim Coates as the rapey drifter that Kevin Costner has to kill on his boat. The rapey drifter. Yeah, it's... What a, what a word. What a description. <laughs> and I, I don't know what else to call it because Kevin Costner offers up Helen as sort of like, you know, here's my... Here's what I have to trade. Oh, by the way, it's the body of a woman. And then King Coates is all just like, ooh, I haven't had a woman in a long time. It's like, okay. Ooh. It's like, this was already creepy, and you made it even more so. Also, in this film, I don't know if you caught it, because I missed it, but I guess Jack Black makes an appearance, and a cameo appearance as the smoker plane pilot in one of his first ever roles. Yeah, this is one of those blink-and-you-miss-it type of cameos, but I I was really surprised to learn that as well. Same. I'm like, I, I blinked, and I missed it, so... <laughs> Whatever. I think he's got maybe one or two words of dialogue and then his scene's over. <laughs> it's just, oh, wait, Jack Black was in that. Who would have thought this is how his career would begin in Waterworld? So, hey, whatever. <laughs> hey, Tenacious D had to start somewhere. <laughs> so, Waterworld, folks, that's the cast. Uh, this film I know much about. Uh, it Pretty much, I think this film is very famous for its production. It's pre-production, post-production. The entire productive state of this film is just chaos went on due to budget issues. I know I found for the budget, it's like right around 172 to 175 million, which is crazy expensive for the 90s, right? Yeah, I I read that the budget was originally set at 100 million, and then it's still crazy. And, and then mid 1994 it was 135 million. And then fid- finish with that final budget of 175 million. Well, and he, just for context, in in today's money adjusted for inflation, that comes to just under 300 million dollars. So you got a nice Marvel film out of this. <laughs> yeah, that's Avengers money for a Kevin Costner Mad Max ripoff. Is what this is. <laughs> and it and it was. I mean, I think. Well, they said that the majority why the budget was so crazy is because they had to film on sea. Right. So it was actual filming on the ocean, which I could only imagine building the sets, all the explosions, the insurance policies alone for the actors had to have been nuts. And then a hurricane went in, came through and destroyed all the set work. So they had to do it again while getting screwed by the Islanders that sold them the parts. So, yeah, the hurricane comes, blows down the set. Everything's kind of messed up on Waterworld for a little while. And then... Kevin Costner decides to rear his ugly head in terms of being a backseat director, as Kevin Reynolds calls him, 
and just decides I'm going to take over this film and have a suggestion on every single scene we're going to shoot. <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, this is like vintage Kevin Costner going in rogue. I mean, he's done, I don't know if you've heard of other movies that he's done this in, but I know he did this in the 80s with Gene Hackman, a film that they did together. He basically told the director one of the scenes. He said, this is where we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. And I don't care. Gene's going to play off of me because this is how I feel and this is what I want. And the director looked at him like, whoa, okay, we're just going to do it, you know, because I guess Kevin Costner up and coming in the 80s and he just took that with him and boom, here we have Kevin Costner Waterworld that is going to push around <laughs> Reynolds. Yeah, well, I think at this point, Kevin Costner probably thought he had more clout than he realized he did. I mean, he had just won an Academy oh. Award for directing Dancers with Wolves, so he probably thought he could just come onto any film set, offer up his opinion as a director, and it would just be well-received because everybody thought, oh, well, he has an Oscar. He must know what he's talking about. Right? Well, hey, man, every speeding train ends up slowing down somehow. So whether it's the brakes or falling off the track, it crashes and burns. And this is, uh, I'd say Waterworld is the beginning of his uh, slowdown. Well, an Oscar is not the be-all and end-all of everything. I mean, Ben Affleck has an Oscar, for God's sakes. <laughs> He's got two, actually. So, so yeah, I mean, we, we, have an in- <laughs> we have an inflated budget that's gone that's just in this balloon because of natural disasters we have a director getting replaced during you know the end of production and then we also have a composer getting replaced we have mark isham who was the original composer and then who had completed a good portion of music for the film until he was replaced by james newton howard yes because kevin costner said that the music was too ethnic and too bleak so it wasn't good enough for him. Which I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand what that means, too ethnic and, and too bleak. I mean, you have a, a movie that's set at the end of the world. Humanity is left to float on water. What's so, I mean, how can you get any bleaker than that? I don't know either. Like, maybe he just wanted to copy and paste the Mad Max soundtrack. And if he should have done that, then he should have done it. Because that's just a waste of money. Yeah, just just make it a full blown ripoff of Mad Max. I mean, if, if if that's what you want to do, just do that. Well, it's just because I don't know editing editing room wise. If you've read the reports, but I know with Kevin Costner, he like chopped off I think forty five minutes, like between him and the studio, because they wanted to salvage the film. They like cut out about 45 minutes that have still yet to be released. I know they've released the lead scenes, but apparently the actual three-hour film is great and digestible, but what we got is... Yeah, I mean, who who knows their reasoning for wanting to take out all of those minutes? I mean, mean, probably could have offered some character clarity on the Deacon and the Mariner, but who knows now? I mean... It's unlikely. Well, yeah. it's unlikely we'll see a Kevin Costner Waterworld cut. You know? No, it's not like Batman versus Superman. It's just it. The nineties, the fans weren't that much fans, and I don't think people cared. They made the budget, and they're like, "All right, we're good." <laughs> people watched it on home video, so we don't need to release it all. Yeah, I mean, and it could have offered some insight as to. I mean, I don't know if you caught this throughout the film, but it's clearly implied that humanity 
cause the ice caps to melt, but it's rather unambiguous as to whether it was actually climate change that did the deed. Yeah, I mean, it's it wasn't real, like, clairvoyance. I know I've read some research, I don't know about you, with climate change, but I know the melting of the ice caps isn't going to make the world become water world. That's that's wrong. <laughs> Scientifically, that's wrong. No, I think I, I think I saw something that the even if the ice caps did melt, it would only raise ocean levels by what was it like a hundred feet or something? Yeah, I mean we would only lose like parts of Texas, Florida, Louisiana, most of California, Venice, the, basically the places right now that are that are saying, "Oh, we're losing land, we're getting on some more submerged those." States and countries for sure would be submerged, but the entire continent would not be covered in water. Now, I did read that in maybe in two billion years, the entire uh, planet will be completely submerged. But that's basically two billion years, and that's with research, they said, due to Earth's crust thinning. The, over the past billion years, Earth's crust has gotten thinner and thinner, and they project in two billion years the crust will have been become so thin that the sea levels are going to rise and continue to cover the majority of the planet. But that's also two billion years, and if nukes haven't killed us, and, and the, or the blazing sun or Arctic winters, then the waters will. <laughs> Yeah, bottom line, there's just a there's an end point to everything, whether it's the sun exploding or the ocean <laughs> drowning everything. The earth is going to die in some way, in, in some type of cataclysm. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God, I wouldn't want to be around for that, though. Better learn how to swim. <laughs> learn how to swim or, or build a kick-ass boat, you know? Right, exactly. The only people that are going to be around for that is maybe Walt Disney's decapitated head, and like frozen in a time capsule. <laughs> if, 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 you t- if you examine Waterworld closely, I think it definitely has a pro-environmental message at its core. We, we, oh, yeah. You see, we see it in, especially with the Mariner. I mean, you see him preferring to eat fruits and vegetables, and he doesn't do that fishing trick that often. As cool as it is, he doesn't jump in the water all the time. Hey, I'm going to catch a fish. Yeah, which I do have to say I missed that trick the first time. I watched it, and then apparently that was a thing. I guess I looked down, and I rewatched it, and that is a CGI fish if I could see one. <laughs> yeah, that is a horrible CGI fish. <laughs> the, I guess they didn't have enough money to rebuild Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We'll just use PlayStation graphics. It's okay. <laughs> I would say though that is probably the only part of the film that did not age well where you look at it and go ooh whereas the rest of the film it's pretty lush. It's uh yeah there's just a very if you if you examine it closely you can pick out a lot of this pro environmental message that the film is trying to convey. I mean we see uh, yeah. with the deacon as well he's constantly worried about the oil in his ship and then the mariner blows up the ship during the climax and relieves that old man in the oil well. He relieves him of his burden, just looking at the flames and going, oh, thank God. <laughs> that was so funny. Yeah, it is very, you know, he he buys the trees for, uh, I think, what is it, limes or whatever, apple, tree, tomato plants. I mean, he's very 
uh, eco-friendly and they want to get to like dry land with and it's a beautiful mountainscape of Everest covered in lush greenery so it is very you could pick out the contrast between greedy oil corporations versus nature loving people that love animals save the planet <laughs> yeah and i think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about when they mention when you mentioned finding dry land we see a, a stark contrast or we hear i should say a stark contrast between the music we've heard so far in the film where it's this tight action-packed score and then we get to dry land and it's it's almost like we're on jurassic park 2.0 it's even, I would say it's kind of, it's very anti-industrial almost because when Costner takes our the lady down in the bubble or whatever the hell that thing is and he starts like with the lovely, did you like that? It's not even CGI. They just put a green screen behind him as they swim, but he like swims through uh, the old ruins of Chicago or whatever you know, he talks a lot of smack about how us humans, we destroyed each other and we're terrible people, didn't take the time to look after one another, learn skills. We just wasted it away. Yeah, I find um, it amazing that the Mariner wasn't killed from all the pressure on his lungs. Ah, <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. Apparently gills, with gills, you can just swim wherever. <laughs> the pressure <laughs> doesn't bother you. Because he's still humid, even though he's got webbed feet and gills behind his ears. I mean, that's... <laughs> Which that that opens its own other can of worms. I mean, there is no way that humans are going to develop um, those adaptations over the course of 500 years. Nor are they going to look like Kevin Costner. I just don't think so, man. Right. They're not going to be handsome as hell and still have gills behind their ears and webs on their feet. Like, no, that's not how that's not how that works. (laughs) I wonder if that was a Costner thing that he added on to the story. Some of these parts of the films with the rewrites, you're like, oh, that's definitely a Costner maneuver. Yeah, and and I blame Joss Whedon because he was on set for a bunch of rewrites. Ooh. <laughs> just probably, well, he probably just wanted to make a career. So he's like, yeah, whatever you say, sir. I'll do that. Absolutely. I want close-ups, damn it. I want me to be the guy that saves everyone. I want to have a scene where I cut off the women's hair. Just freaking weird, man. <laughs> Yeah, Kevin Costner just demanding Joss Whedon make him more of a badass in this film. <laughs> you know, but we we touched on it a little bit ago, but this is very clearly a Mad Max ripoff, even if they didn't go full bore into that. Oh, totally. This is Mad Max and C. They're just so similar with the the guy, the smokers. They're so similar to what did they call them in the newest one? The guys that like rode all the. Ah, oh, the the white guys that drove the trucks and everything. Oh yeah, I think it was um the road boys. Yes, they're so similar, and even to the old Mad Max, the leather jackets and everything. I mean, these guys, it's it's so clear that they were inspired, <laughs> almost to the point of uh, what would you mimicry? Yeah, and it's I would have loved to have been in the pitch meeting for Waterworld, where just one of the producers just steps up and says, "It's like Mad Max." but there's no desert. <laughs> it's funny. It was. It was. I mean, if you th- you think so, I think so. If anyone listening thinks so, write in. We'll take a poll. I just think it may have been easier at this point in the mid-90s to kind of maybe take the reins away from George Miller 
and say, hey, we're just going to make another Mad Max movie with or without you because Beyond Thunderdome came out in 1989, but Miller wasn't able to come up with a good story for a Mad Max sequel until the early 2000s. And, mm-hmm. of course, the the production on Fury Road wouldn't happen until 2012. So maybe someone could have just stepped in and said, hey, George, here's a bunch of money. Do you want to give up control of the Mad Max films? <laughs> I feel like that would have been easier, but who knows? It's it, You are right. It is very similar to the <laughs> Mad Max. Yeah, but I mean, if we're going to talk about the Mariner versus Mad Max, who do you think wins in that fight? Oh, uh, I would say if, like on land or, well, I don't know. I like Mel Gibson, so I'm going to say Mel Gibson. Cause he's just such ah. a badass, right? I just they tried so hard to make the Mariner into this Mad Max type of clone, but it just it doesn't work. I mean, to really portray Mad Max, you have to be able to access this darkness and anger in you, but yet ultimately have a very strong moral compass to always do the right thing, and that's who Mad Max is. Kevin Costner to me doesn't have that. No, I think he. He just, his character switches, and I think that's due to the editing, because his character is this, almost like a the man without a name, you know? Like almost a cowboy walking through nothing, just trying to survive, and then he unfortunately has these two women that are thrust onto the, you know, onto his boat that he has to take for a ride, but he really doesn't care about any of them until I feel like the story tells him he has to care about them because he seemed like he was ready just to pawn him off to the rapey guy (laughs) and then something just switches because the girls like listen and obey and stop talking after he like threatens to kill them and cut off their hair I'm like whoa man that's why am I supposed to root for this man I mean yeah in spite of Mad Max's flaws he ultimately does care about people I mean he does He does help them out. And the Mariner, you just, for the most part of the film, you just think he's a jerk. I mean, he winds up on the atoll. I mean, in the beginning of the film, he really, or Marceau, kind of coerces his way on there by showing up. Look, I got dirt. Let me on there. And then he brushes everybody off. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. He doesn't want to hang out with anybody. And then Mm -hmm. even before that, at the very beginning, after we see him, you know, do the thing with his pee, he kind (laughs) of leaves that other drifter to to die by the hands of the smokers. Yeah, the guy does die. He's just, this dude's an asshat, man. And so it's it's really hard to uh, digest his big sweeping turnaround and then also to root for this man that was a complete douche for an hour and a half to then care about these two women and go and save them and blow up the smokers' den. I just, I don't know. It wasn't yeah. very believable. <laughs> It's hard to like him, the Mariner, when he flip-flops his, his moral intentions for most of the film. Exactly. If that, Well, that's the thing with like uh, character writing. I view like Han Solo as one of the greatest anti-heroes. You, if your character is an anti-hero and they don't want to be there, or they're thrust into a position where they have to be the hero, there has to be some qualities of their personality that you enjoy. Whether it be joking, there has to be like some moral compass, there has to be something that we care about. And it can't just be like a big sweeping 180 when the story needs to. There has to be like building towards this. But this film, it doesn't really have that. It just... And and even when, like, the characters, like, even though he doesn't have any redeemable qualities, it's like the the way that the characters, he ends up caring about them is like, you chopped off their hair, 
you almost drown them. <laughs> you you drop sails on them. You threaten to sell the daughters to a rapist. Like what? What? Like this is supposed to be the reason why you care about them? Like terrible man yeah he teaches enola how to swim and then is perfectly willing to sell helen to a rapist for like fuel or food or something it's 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 hard to get a bit uh, a, a bead on him yeah, exactly you just you don't understand the man he's he's very confusing individual and i don't think this is an indie film where it's portraying how confused he is as a person <laughs> no so at the end of that discussion we we've learned that mad max is better than the mariner just about everything <laughs> I would say so. Indeed. I would take Mad Max over the Mariner any day. I mean, I think we can kind of see why the Mariner is a bit hesitant to hang out with people. I mean, because he does have those mutations. And then when they're discovered on that atoll, they instantly want to try and kill him. (laughs) Oh, humans as we are. Anything that we fear, we want to kill and destroy. (laughs) That's how we react to things we don't understand. But which again, 500 years is not enough time for humanity to grow those adaptations. And it kind of made me wonder, like, wait, have they encountered these these mutos, as they call them beforehand? Like, what's going on here? I know that would be good to know if there's like mermaids or something, just a couple. It would be nice, some preface, because they kind of, it almost, the reason why they wanted to kill him, it seemed like uh, it was like religious reasons or whatnot, as opposed to an actual reason. Like, oh, the last time we let you gill people in here, you murdered us all and stole our stuff. It's like, all right, then that, that, that's a good reason to want to like kill this man, but because he's different. We've regressed in society. Yeah, that atoll was very giving off some very heavy fundamentalist religion vibes there with, you know, that that briny tree grown from, I guess, people carcasses and yeah. and offering up young girls as, like, tribute. Like, here, impregnate our daughter. Like, that's just, ugh. There's a lot going on in that atoll that's just creepy. You know, this is the second movie that we saw with Kevin Costner where someone was offered up to him, right? Because didn't that happen in The Postman? What is yeah, up that- with this man? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's more like Kevin Costner just bullying the writers. They listen. There has to be a scene in here where a woman is offered up to me. (laughs) I am so sexy as a man. No one can resist me. (laughs) No one can resist me, and they just offer up their daughters willingly to me. He's read too much of his fan mail. Good Lord. Do you think you... It's very weird. Good God. Do you think you would be able to survive in this water-tastic world? I know I said I would probably not. You know, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I would, to be honest, because this is just like, unless I was living on one of those atolls that wasn't bothering anybody, but then you have to worry about the smokers and their guns coming in, and I just, I don't think I'd be able to survive water world. I think I would just... You know, tie a cement block to my feet and just say, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Peace out. I, I don't want to live like this. <laughs> I'd rather drown. Because <laughs> if the water doesn't kill you or the smokers, the skin cancer will for sure. Right. And I, I'm amazed that um, I'm amazed that the smokers are able to find weapons and bullets and all these vehicles that are in such usable condition, even after like 500 years. They said that the the ice caps melted. Yeah, 
There's no way. Where the heck did where the heck did they get all this stuff? I don't know. Maybe they they there's no way that they dove down to find it. Maybe maybe it was like the survivors, you know? The people that lived in the rural areas of America, they found their way, they climbed up to the Rockies or whatever, and they traded their equipment. Who knows? Yeah, I don't think the Exxon Valdez had a big stockpile of jet skis in its hold or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Speaking of jet skis, what did you think of all those stunts? Oh, man, the stunt work in this film is incredible. I would have to say it's one of the more redeeming qualities to it because these, these action scenes are highly choreographed. There's some stuff that I have never seen in any other film before or since any of this. I mean, you have jet skis diving underwater and then coming back up, and then you have aerial combat and just so many vehicles in the mix. It's, uh, I mean, I don't want to go too hyperbolic here but it's almost like a almost like a mini lord of the rings type of battle on the ocean yeah i i would say you're right with that they're quite elaborate quite hell i mean they made a theme park attraction <laughs> off of the jet ski scenes alone because <laughs> that opening that opening scene with uh where the smokers attack that floating barge island thing was pretty impressive you definitely saw the budget at use and it was well worth it i think yeah and even the the mariner's boat is an impressive craft as well i mean there's there's this was actually it was actually a custom made boat for the film and there were two of them that were made i mean we see the the racing version in the film that got up to about 35 miles per hour and then there was the the transforming one was actually held in private ownership after the filming wrapped oh that's cool so someone owns yeah, the it, boat. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I think, from what I read, it was still being used in um, competitive races as recently, I think, um, as 2016. Oh, that's rad. Well, cool. Hey, there's some trivia for you. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> someone wanted the boat so bad. <laughs> but there is a disproportionate amount of functioning watercraft in this film than there should be in a post-apocalyptic film. And the watercraft is like all rusted up. So it's like how that's what I was thinking. Watching the jet skis go, the smokers, the irony of the smokers all smoking, but also their jet skis were smoking as well, said there's no way a jet ski that's 500 years old is going to go that fast or function that well. No, and that big oil tanker would have rusted out as well and just sunk into the ocean because it's it's i think it's plausible to assume it's been on the water for close to 500 years there's just no way there's no way there's no craft around nowadays that have lasted that long still functions i mean even parts have you even tried to trying to buy parts for an old vehicle from the 50s is nearly damn impossible for a vehicle I imagine jet ski parts from the 90s are nowhere to be found, especially in the next 20 years. No, it's and even the planes, too. My God, like how oh, yeah, were they able to how were they able to find planes and mechanics and pilots for these freaking <laughs> things? And I, I find it incredulous to think that. <laughs> That they were able to find a pilot or just somebody who had the wherewithal, hey, if I press this button, it makes the propellers go. And if I pull back on this, it makes the plane go up. Like, I find it hard to believe that they found someone who could do that all these years in the future. <laughs> the suspension of belief is very, very high. It's set at a very you high have to, bar. You have to take a lot 
with a grain of salt for this film. I mean, A, for humans to adapt to their conditions with just a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things, as well as all the vehicles and weapons and things that just haven't completely rusted out. And then the addition of the characters, because for me, I never felt like Helen or Enola really matter that much to the story. No. I mean, the only reason why the girl matters is because of this tattoo that ends up just being like a symbol of Mount Everest. It doesn't mean anything that much. No, I mean, Helen really doesn't even do anything on that atoll. Her shelves are empty. So what she's selling, what, like feature spots and timeshares? Like what's she doing there? Sex, Chris. She's a prostitute. That's what I took for it. I'm like, (laughs) you think Helen's a hooker on the atoll? That's what I'm saying, man. There's no other reason for this woman to be around. I mean, I'm like, you just have one tomato plant. Like, what else are you selling? And how often does she get and move product? That was my question. Like, what the hell is going on? How? Like, I doubt in the 2,500 that there's just so much. There's an influx of so many people bringing in things they've found. There's no No, way. No, they're probably... They're probably murdering any drifter that comes to their atoll and takes their stuff and sells it. I mean, that's what they're probably doing. Oh, yeah, because even the mariner tries to come and they're like, nope, we don't want any of that stuff. And then the shelves are empty. It's like, what are you talking about? You don't want things. The shelves are empty. Who? What do you guys want then? Sex, Chris. You know, and then, that's what they and want. And if that atoll, I think if that atoll were doing that, I think word would have gotten out at some point because it's only mentioned a couple of times, but the drifters seem to have some type of code that governs, you know, their conduct on the sea pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. The code of uh, how they act and everything. Don't steal another person's stuff. It's just, I don't know, the women just, and just seem more like a pawn in the in the in service of the mariner than anything else in the film because we mentioned you know the young woman that's offered up a sexual tribute um and helen just kind of sees the mariner as her only way out once the smokers arrive and yep i mean and, and this is pretty this is pretty ind- indicative of a lot of kevin costner's roles where the women are often subservient to him or his characters and I mean, they can't. It's almost like the women can't really be counted on in his films to be <laughs> tough or strong, in spite of the circumstances around them. Are you saying that Kevin Costner could possibly be a misogynist or not know how to write for women? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying because it's probably freaking true. Ah, huh, let's see. Robin Hood needs to save the lady. Uh, this film needs to save the lady. Postman needs to save the lady. Ah, I haven't seen Dances of Wolves, but I damn well believe he probably had to save a Native American woman. <laughs> well, we don't have time to get into Dances of the Wolves because that's like a four-hour-long film. But yeah, that's 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 the gist of some of that film, though. God. So probably people were just tired of the same old shtick. But yes, I, I agree. <laughs> Kevin Costner does not know how to write for women at all. Even especially when they're the central point of the plot. <laughs> right. Uh, we hardly get any sort of like tender moments between 
uh, Enola and the Mariner, or even with Helen and the Mariner, especially in that scene where they have the the rapey drifter. There's no real build up to that. We don't we don't see the Mariner kind of sneaking any glances to Helen or having any sort of real conversation with her. It's just, oh my gosh, I just realized I made a massive mistake and now I'm going to go down there and kill him. <laughs> right? And it leads to the Mariner burning down and them making out and having sex on top of the wreckage. Oh, that was such a hilarious scene. I just, I literally started bo- uh, laughing out loud. I couldn't believe that was real. <laughs> I'm like, they're banging on top of the smoldering wreckage of his ship. His ship that he loves more than anything else. You got to be kidding me. Yeah, because if there's one thing that gets women going, it's, you know, you know, doing it on top of burning wreckage. <laughs> yeah, he understands women, Chris. He does. I think he should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> that's what women want but you think kevin costner should write a book on how to treat women poorly i think <laughs> exactly i think no just just write a book exactly of how to treat women i think it will sell grandiose copies in this time <laughs> well speaking well uh did you have a red shirt in Waterworld, sean oh there's too many so many smokers just died willy-nilly i would say uh, the guy at the beginning that stole the limes, he was just like offed because he jacked the dude's limes. But then, I mean, it was just so unceremonious. Poor man. Poor man. Or that or the pilot of the uh, plane. Because that dude got blasted to smithereens. How about you? You know, uh, we don't actually see this death on screen, but I'd have to go with the old woman who's dropped into the brine when the mariner arrives at that atoll. I mean, and it's... It's implied that they're growing that tree with human corpses as fertilizer. But like where does that root system go? Is it just going right into the water? Like like what's happening? And I don't understand how all of those people can be comfortable knowing that their relatives and friends are being used as mulch. <laughs> That's right. And me personally, I don't want to go visit the corpse tree. I don't. The corpse tree that's right how does that tree even work i don't even understand Uh, it it shouldn't that's that's the bottom line it should not work the tree should be dead there's too much water to survive that's funny as hell (laughs) i never even thought of it like that yeah because the brine is like all that green smut and crap that's floating that looks like uh algae right yeah, and then they try to drown the mariner in it, and I would just be like, well, this is how I die. I'm being drowned in people goo. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I didn't really have a great red shirt at all. So I, I like that one that you have. That's a good one. <laughs> well, did you have a lens flare? Uh, my lens flare was the I uh, them making out on the smoldering wreckage. Because that just, my, <laughs> I, I couldn't. <laughs> it was just too much at that. I just had to throw down the remote and say, are you kidding me? This is just nonsense now. Yeah, we just had a big old battle. Enola's been kidnapped. Hey, why don't we have a little smooch session? <laughs> Your entire lives work. He had libraries of books on his freaking ship just gone. And it's just sunk. And you're telling me that you're just going to make out, oh, this is what gets me going. It's like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way. (laughs) How about you? 
<laughs> you know, uh, I'd have to go with at the very beginning of the film, we see the Mariner peeing into a jar. And then he, by using some contraption on his boat, he's able to distill his urine and comfortably drinks it. <laughs> That's right. Now, I have to point out that this contraption never comes up at any other point in the film. And it just seems like an unnecessary ploy to show how ingenious the Mariner is. Instead of just showing us his skills while he's piloting his boat, that's all we need to see. We don't need to see him drinking his pee because that's just gross. It is gross. And it's also probably really warm, which is also gross. I know. I I have to think that that's another one of those Kevin Costner uh, circumstances of bullying the writers and saying, I want a scene where I drink my pee. (laughs) kinky kevin costner i'm not only amazing as a ship driver i'm also super intelligent where i can craft mechanisms that turn my urine into filtered water i'm amazing i want to show the world that my urine tastes delicious (laughs) oh if only r kelly had those skills (laughs) (laughs) oh god did you have any toxic fandom Oh, my God, did I? <laughs> the internet had big problems with this film. <laughs> oh, surprise. But this is the one I found the funniest. Um, the rust holes in the side of the super tanker are much too conveniently placed for the Mariner to easily climb into the hull. They also show obvious signs of being precision cut with an oxyacetylene or plasma cutter, not gradually or randomly corroded, as they should be. <laughs> There's one thing we learned with Kevin Costner's sci-fi films is that the internet uh, vehemently ejects to them. He's just hilarious. <laughs> Someone knew that. Someone took the time to watch that. Uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> some some rust pedant was just out there on the internet watching this film, and they were like, oh, rust doesn't behave like that. I have to let the world know. <laughs> I love P- I love pet ants. Just keep them coming, baby. <laughs> Never stop. Oh, there's so much fun. <laughs> no. Oh man. Oh my god, that's amazing. No, I did not see any uh, toxic fandom. I just was researching the science because this whole film is just like a conglomerate of just nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. Yeah, it's bad science and bad filmmaking, which I think perfectly translates now into discussing the legacy of Waterworld. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, we talked about the film's tumultuous pre-production and production cycle, but post-release, it's had this sort of odd, successful post-release life, I would say. Because the run-up to this film, as we said, was infinite, infamous, and it, the film even garnered some nicknames like Kevin's Gate and Fishtar after the infamous flops Heaven's Gate and Ishtar. So with the final budget being as big as it was uh, at $175 million, the final promotions and marketing actually ramped up the budget to about $235 million. And yeah, and the film only finished with a worldwide gross of $264 million. So they made some money. <laughs> no, they probably, if they did make money, uh, it would probably came through home media sales and selling to television rights. Because I remember, I think, like in the early 2000s, this film was on TV all the time. All the, yes. 
Same. I remember watching it all the time as a kid. Yeah, it was the Shawshank Redemption and Waterworld that were on on TV all the time when I was a kid. <laughs> yep, yep. One with Morgan Freeman narrating and one with Kevin Costner being the silent, boring, boring man. It's like I told Kevin all those years ago. Don't film a movie on the water. Stay on land, Kevin. Stay on land. <laughs> Yeah, so this film, it made money with its home media. It was pretty much, they said it was going to fail, but it didn't. It actually made money, surprisingly. And, I mean, eventually it, it made money, but it took a long time. I mean, oh yeah. but the critical response to it at the time was awful. I mean, oh, yeah. for, for all they sank into it, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes only has a score of 46%. Metacritic gave it a score of 56%. Roger Ebert wasn't a huge fan of the film either, given though this seems like right up his alley with all his weird reviews. He gave the film two and a half out of four stars. Hey, I mean, you know, Kevin Costner said he's very fond of the film. It's a really cool, exotic, cool movie. <laughs> well, in Kevin Costner's mind, he's also never made a bad film. So <laughs> take that for what you will. Even Dennis Hopper, though, he said he enjoyed the movie. He said it got a bad name in the U.S., but it did really well in Europe and Asia. So he said uh, it was probably the studio that ruined it because they went over budget and then like all the outrage prior to like the press release. But I feel like the outrage articles kind of helped generate the buzz for the film because I feel in the 90s people were saying, oh, I want to see this flop happen. Yeah, this is a this is infamous for. It's budget, and I think people are interested to watch it now and see, like, well, why is this film so negative, was so negatively received in the 90s? Is it held up at all? I mean, I think we could debate whether or not it's held up for a while, much too longer for the length of this show. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but at the time, this was just, it was not well received, even though... It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound Mixing. It was nominated for a couple of Saturns. But then it was just nominated for all these Golden Raspberry Awards. <laughs> People were trashing it. Bad but again, like, But again, like five years later, this, after the film comes out, it's just it's maintained this weird post-release life. I mean, it's received yeah. several video game adaptations, but these were all failures. Don't get us wrong there. They, those were terrible games. Some comic books, novels, and as we've said, uh, theme parks as well, like the attraction. The Waterworld Live at Sea War. The Waterworld Alive Sea War Spectacular. I know I've, I, I've seen that. Have you? I have not, but I, I watched the, the show on YouTube because they have the, these YouTube channels where people go on theme park rides and record it and then they put it on and, it, you know, <laughs> I guess some people make money on it somehow and... It's weird to watch it because, I mean, it's clearly not actors who are in this thing. It's just, you know, some stunt worker getting paid like 20 bucks an hour or something to do all these things. I mean, yeah, it, it's impressive. There's some impressive vehicular combat and, and, and stunt scenes. But, I mean, it is it is what it is. It's your average movie-based stunt show is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. And somehow it still stays relevant. Oh, water world. <laughs> Uh, you got anything else you want to chat before we finally rate this bad boy? Yeah, I, I got nothing else. What do you say we rate this, Sean? I'm down, man. I'm down. <laughs> so on our 
unique scale on the force fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch would watch would own and would host a viewing party what do you give to Waterworld? Waterworld, i'm sorry but i'm more in the uh would not watch frame <laughs> it's just i don't know after seeing this again as an adult the stunt work is really cool with the action scenes and everything plus Dennis Hopper, but I think the film just like struggles with a lot of lulls with the plot, the editing, and just all those choices we've discussed on here. So unless they find a way to dig out that three hour long cut, I don't think I'm ever gonna watch this again, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, I'm good. I've had my fill of the water for now. So would not watch for me, man. How about you? You know, it's not often that a film I watch will make me desire to watch an entirely different film. And after watching this, I immediately wanted to watch a Mad Max film. And it's borrow this borrows so much from anti-hero films, westerns, and as we've talked about the Mad Max franchise that it's almost laughable. And Kevin Costner is hardly convincing as an anti-hero action star and his co-stars are relegated to mostly tropes and given a backseat for most of the films. And while the action scenes and the stunt work and the production design deserve to be praised and rightfully so, the rest of this film does not rise to the technical greatness that we see. And while this is a better attempt at a post-apocalyptic sci-fi film than the postman was, it's not better by much. And for that, Waterworld is just a would not watch for me. I think I think I gave the postman a would erase from my memory <laughs> last year when we reviewed it. So Waterworld is better than Postman, but again, not by much. <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> I would say, yeah, it's not. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not as bad as The Sound of Thunder, but it's pretty bad. You mean a sound of fraudulent thunder. Exactly. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you have it, folks. Now it's time to pick our next one. Yeah, let's pick our next movie and hopefully get the taste of Waterworld out of our mouth. <laughs> let's rinse our mouth. So mouths. we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us select from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected number 25. It is a film from 2013, directed by Guillermo del Toro. It is Pacific Rim. Oh, I've never seen this. So I'm... Uh, what? No, nah, I never did. I always uh, wanted to. I've heard people say you got to watch it, but it just never happened for me. Just seemed oh, man. Well, <laughs> I think you're going to be in for a treat. Sweet. Well, I'm down. Can't wait. Uh, that is it for the show, folks. It's always a pleasure, Chris. Oh, likewise, my friend. And if you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. 
Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Force Fed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Force Fed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design associate producer and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.